just want to share for just a, a few minutes with you. You know, you often hear it said that with God, there are no such thing as coincidences. What I want to add to that tonight is that with God, there are no such thing as meaningless, insignificant details. And so what I want to do with you now is just to look at three apparently insignificant details that we find recorded right in the midst of the the awful horror and yet the wonder of the cross. Details that I believe are not insignificant, no, but because the reason why they were recorded, the reason why the Lord inspired Matthew to include them in his account of the gospel is because these things symbolize, these things capture in a moment, in a picture, some of the momentous things that happened, that began to happen on that very first Easter. These events symbolize truths then, whose significance really reverberates throughout eternity. But tonight what we're going to try to do, just in the time we've got available, is just try to catch something, just a, something of the essence of what the Lord is saying in the details of the first Easter. So let's first then look at the darkness, that awful darkness that descended as the suffering of Jesus began to reach its climax there at the cross. As Matthew 27.45 says, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But what does that darkness symbolize? What can it symbolize? Other than the darkness of man's sin and the resultant displeasure of God. For you see, it was there, it was at the cross that that man's rebellion against God and the the wickedness and the evil that that leads to, it was at the cross that that rebellion, that sin, reached its very climax. As their men crucified their Messiah, God's anointed, that perfect, lovely Son of God who'd been sent to be their Savior. You see, we might think that today that we live in sinful days, and I believe that we do. And that Again, in, in our time, the days that we live, sin is building up again to something of a climax. But no matter what evil deeds are done in this day, and no matter how many of them there are, no matter if sin becomes the accepted fabric of our society, which seems to me to be more and more the case, where increasingly there seems to be no longer any right or wrong in the society we live in. But no matter what, never again will sin reach the level that it did in those moments where cruel men crucified the sinless Son of God. Never. But the darkness doesn't only symbolize the darkness of man's sin. No, I believe it it does also symbolize the displeasure of God towards that sin. For you see, we're told here that at the very end of this period of darkness, that for a moment in eternity, the perfect fellowship between the Father and the Son was broken. As Jesus took our sin upon him, 
And for a moment, God the Father just could not look even upon his Son, clothed in the filth of our sin. You see, that's what verse 46 means. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But at the end of this darkness meant the forsakenness of Jesus as he took our sin upon himself. Well, then surely we cannot fail to see in this darkness something of the displeasure of God against the sins of men. Yes, and in that darkness, we see there where we would be, where we would stand if it had not been for Jesus. In the darkness of God's wrath and God's judgment in the here and now. I'm waiting only for his final verdict, his final judgment to come in eternity. But thank God, thank God, that there was not only darkness on that first Easter, no, there was also the earthquake. In fact, there are two earthquakes recorded, one in verse 51, the earth shook and the rocks split, and the other in, in chapter, uh, chapter 28, verse 2, where it says there was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat upon it. But for me, although there might be slight differences of meaning, yet both these earthquakes, both of them, must be at least a sign, must be at least a symbol of God's acceptance of the, of the sacrifice of Christ. That this was God's way of saying his way of announcing, and I sense his trumpet call, not just to those first inhabitants of Jerusalem, but to all of mankind right down through history, that the sacrifice of his son Jesus is enough. It's God's way of saying that that perfect, sinless life of Jesus is enough. That it is the worthy sacrifice that pays, that atones for all our unworthiness. The earthquake is God's way of saying that Jesus, by his death and his resurrection, that he has won the victory over sin and death and the powers of evil. Of evil. The earthquake is the sign given by God that because of Jesus, the reign of darkness is now over. And now it is possible for all of us in Jesus to come out of the darkness and to go into the light and the love of God. But not only, I believe, is this earthquake a sign, a symbol of this, but as well as this, well, an earthquake by its, its very nature shakes things up, doesn't it? I mean, it's usually only for a relatively short period of time, but an earthquake really does shake things up. In that context, let me share with you then these comments that I found in some writings by a very famous Scottish preacher, James Philip. He says that the resurrection of Jesus was an earthquake-like happening, not so much in the physical realm as in the moral and spiritual realm. A shattering, world-shaking event. Unique, unthinkably incredible, but true. With this difference from an earthquake 
in the physical realm. The latter, once the upheaval is past, is over and done with, and eventually recedes from the memory, and life returns to normal again. But the spiritual and moral earthquake of the cross and resurrection is something that goes on and on and repeats itself endlessly, always turning worlds upside down. And of course, that's true. What happened on the first Easter has since that time, like an earthquake, been shaking up lives, been shaking up societies, been turning the world upside down. The world has never been the same, and it never will. By this country that we live in, our legal system, our schools and hospitals, all spring out of Christian teaching, and so all have their roots in that first Easter. And in many individual lives, how many lives here tonight has Jesus shook up since then? And not just at the point of conversion. I don't know about you, but Jesus is still shaking my life up. He's still revealing new truth to me. He's still showing me the darkness of my heart. He's still deepening in my life an awareness of my need of him and revealing to me the superficiality of so many of my attitudes. Isn't that true? true for you as well, that the vibrations that were felt there when the stone first rolled away are vibrations that spiritually we still feel today. The final deal I want to turn your attention to is that which followed immediately after the death of Jesus. But it says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, as I'm sure many, probably all of you know, this curtain in the temple separated off that place in the temple that was called the Holy of Holies from the rest of it. That place where it was said that the, the presence of God was to be known in a special way, but which could only be entered by, by special men, by priests, and only on special days, on festivals, and only after they'd observed all the special requirements of the law, the, the ritual washing and sacrifice, etc. So what then is the Lord saying here as he tears this temple into this curtain? He's saying that from now on, access directly into his presence isn't open just to the chosen few isn't there just on certain days and only as they observe the law and prove themselves righteous. No, access to God, right in to His presence, is open now to all who come to Him through Jesus. Who come to Him trusting not in the law, trusting not in what we can do or who we are, but trusting in Jesus Christ. Trusting in who He is, Trusting in what on that cross he did for us. And tonight, this communion service is a celebration of that. For you see, as we gather here and come to give thanks for what Jesus has done, what I believe the Lord wants us to know, and not just in our minds, but in our heart. He wants us to know in our spirit. He wants us to know in the most intimate way possible. That he loves us. He accepts us. 
the way into his presence is open to us, that we are precious to him. That's the kind of experience of him that I believe God wants you to have as we gather around the table. Let's just come and pray. Father, we thank you that you want us to know you tonight. You don't want us just to remember events, wonderful as they are, that happened over 2,000 years ago, but Lord, you want us through those events, through that momentous point in history, you want us to enter into that living experience of your presence, to know that you're with us now, to know that we are precious to you now, to know that you want to take us and to use us for your glory. Lord, help us open our hearts that we might know that the living God is here among us, here to bless us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.